and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at austinarttalk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Brooke Axtell is a writer, performing artist, speaker, and survivor advocate who just released her new book, Beautiful Justice, Reclaiming My Worth After Human Trafficking and Sexual Abuse. I highly recommend you get a copy of this book because it is really powerful and an important read. I'm so thankful to Brooke for her vulnerability in the book and in her interview. The wisdom she shares is so valuable. I keep listening to the interview over and over because there are so many gems. And as she says in the book, art saved her life, and she continues to explore how the arts can be a part of healing and social justice. Here is Brooke. Well, thanks, Brooke, for being on my podcast. My pleasure. I can't remember how long ago it was that you, I think you reached out to me, right? Or did I reach out to you? I did. I came across your interview with Donna Cora. Okay. Yeah. And was really fascinated by the conversations that you're hosting here. Yeah. So that's when I reached out. Yeah. And I've been wanting to have you on for since then. And we finally made the time. And I just finished reading your book. Uh, Thank you for it giving me an advanced copy PDF and uh, wow, it's really powerful and Thank vulnerable. You. And as I was reading it, I've just, I thought of so many people that I wish would read it um, that I think it would be incredibly helpful to. I mean, I think, feel like most of the women I've dated and a lot of women in my life have all dealt with some sort of sexual abuse or something in their life. So, mm-hmm. and that they've shared with me. And I just feel like you're sharing your story But then you're also sharing your healing journey. And then at the end, you're even giving a lot of prompts to help people write and process for themselves in a proactive way. And it's like, really, I think it's going to be really powerful for people. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I also love that you were able to make the connection between your personal experiences and women you've cared about and how this book might be relevant to them. And that's also my hope that not only survivors, women and girls who have lived experience with gender-based violence or sexual exploitation would find solace and encouragement in the book, but allies and policymakers and people Mm. that are thinking about how creative expression can be a part of social justice would also feel invited to be a part of the conversation and find value in the book. So the book is Beautiful Justice, and it comes out on April 2nd. Well, as I do with often with people, like 
maybe for anyone that's listening that uh, is not familiar with who you are, how would you introduce yourself? I am a performing artist, human rights activist, and writer. My passion in my social justice work is supporting women and girls who are overcoming gender-based violence and sex trafficking and holding a vision for a more just and compassionate world with a specific focus on women's leadership and creative resilience and what happens in the aftermath of trauma that helps women and girls thrive and come to value their own voices. Wow, hugely valuable work, considering how prevalent a lot of this abuse is. Yes, I think we're at a moment in the wake of Me Too and so many stories being shared about the cost and the impact of this kind of trauma to come to a point of conversation and inquiry around what happens next and what's possible for us as both survivors and allies. And my vision for beautiful justice is simply focusing on what survivors deserve and what survivors need to thrive and centering that in the discourse, centering survivor well-being. There's this common notion that justice related to these topics is really just about holding perpetrators accountable for their crimes within the criminal justice system. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I want to be a part of a more expansive definition of justice that includes the experiences of survivors and the possibility of thriving, having that become more important than what was forced on our bodies and minds and creating space for stories of leadership, stories of women and girls becoming catalysts for change and artists and people who have a powerful contribution to make. So not to diminish the reality of the trauma or the necessity for holding perpetrators accountable, but really expanding our notion of what it means to create justice after this kind of trauma and looking at not only what it means to be a survivor, but what it means to move beyond survival. And that's where the beautiful part comes in. For me, the arts are essential in defining what makes life worth living, what makes life beautiful. And so when I think about beautiful justice, I think about the moments of intimate human connection, being immersed in nature, making art, these things that we don't need to survive, but are necessary for us to find a meaning, to come alive. Yeah, you said in the book, art saved your life. Well, my my early years, poetry was incredibly important because it gave me a, a way to speak what felt unspeakable in terms of my own abuse and exploitation. I also grew up in the ballet and came into theater and music, so the performing arts have been incredibly important as well. Having the, the safe space and the solace of creative expression helped me to continue to fight for my own healing and fight for a world where my voice would be finally valued. And a way to process everything. Yes, and to slowly, you know, first in, in poetry through symbol and, and metaphor and encode in a way, I was conveying the truth of my emotional experience before I was ready to share the narrative of my trauma. So it came in, in pieces and in waves and 
and eventually once I had a chance to to process through poetry and and song and through symbol and metaphor I eventually built a capacity to trust that I had a truth that was worth telling and that I deserved to be heard and it led to more opportunities for me to share my story more directly so I started going to poetry readings and sharing my work when I was in the eighth grade and was surrounded by mostly middle-aged men and they were incredibly supportive. I vividly remember my first poetry reading when I was in eighth grade and it was in downtown Houston and I had this sense for the first time that I could share anything in that that space and in that context and it would be heard. I could talk about mental illness and addiction and trauma and these things that were very close to the surface for me in terms of what I had witnessed as a child and I could bring all of that into the space and it was received and it was affirmed and I was encouraged to keep writing. It was at that time that I realized that writing could be a pathway for telling the truth about my own life and that I didn't have to apologize and I felt so alone. I felt so different as a child. I felt like I was an outsider. And it was through beginning to share my own work, particularly through writing, that I started to feel less alone, that there were other people, courageous people, who were telling their stories and writing their poems and showing up in these places, creating community and remembering that connection is possible even in those moments when we feel lost and brokenhearted and carrying our experiences alone. So it was like, even though you were writing some of the stories back then in the beginning, you were writing had darkness in them. People didn't necessarily know what that was about or they didn't confront you about it. They didn't necessarily question you about it. Right. Like where that was coming from. No, I think they assumed that it was just the, the play of imagination and, and, in metaphor and so there was no sense from the adults in my life that it might be an indication that something else was surfacing from my own personal experience but in a way I needed that space for it to be read as metaphor for it to be read as just imaginary play because I wasn't ready to truly integrate and to speak directly about my trauma so it gave me a space where I could both be heard and retreat at the same time. You know, I ha- still had that sort of dual consciousness around my creative work that it was both imaginary and and very truthful to what I had seen. And it gave me time to build my resilience and build my sense of having a voice in the world so that when the time came that I wanted to finally be more direct with my trauma narrative and to share more about what was required for my own healing I had this well of experience to draw from you know I had this notion and and visceral experience of feeling that I would be heard that there there was a pathway for me to be heard Mm. so art gave me permission to start that process before I was ready to to share my life in a very direct fashion I was able to share emotional truth through the performing arts and through my writing. And for that to be witnessed and received gave me hope that when the time came, 
other parts of my life could be shared. So then as you got older, where did your writing lead in your healing journey? And then Mm -hmm. what did it, it turned into other things too, Mm -hmm. like music. Yeah. So eventually I started writing and performing poetry and music in clubs around Austin and recorded records. And one of the shifts that happened was even though I still wasn't disclosing my experiences with abuse, it was still infused into the way in which I was approaching the work. I was looking at themes around violence against women and girls and more broadly cultural critiques around social injustice. And I had permission through performance to, again, introduce these themes and to dive into them in a way that was both deeply personal but also part of a collective conversation and I had a opportunity to record a song called Pretty Girls Should, which played on KGSR and some other radio stations when I was about 19. And it was a song about childhood sexual abuse, but it was written from the perspective of someone else. It wasn't my story. It wasn't the age I was when I went through the experience. It wasn't the same perpetrator, but it conveyed an emotional truth that translated for other people. And when I started performing this this song around clubs in Austin. I remember the first time I performed it at La Zona Rosa, I had survivors start to come up to me after a show and tell me how much it meant to them that I was singing about childhood sexual abuse. And I still hadn't identified myself publicly as a survivor, but it was tapping into something that was very real for them. Hmm. And so I was at this this turning point moment where I, I had a song on the radio. I was performing it in clubs. I had survivors coming to me and thanking me for this song, and yet I had not yet disclosed my own experience. And it helped prepare the way for me to not only begin to share with loved ones and people close to me what my reality had been, but it also gave me the sense that I wanted to explore more about the ways in which the arts could be a part of creating social justice and inner healing and cultural healing. So I started introducing to my sets short speeches and reflections on what I was reading and what I was processing around Mm. human rights issues and the ways in which the music and the poetry and, and these reflections were converging. And eventually I found that there was so much social content, social justice content that I wanted to bring into the clubs. I thought, you know, maybe the way in which to do this is not to bring social justice into the clubs, but to bring the performing arts and writing into social justice spaces, places where you normally don't see poetry performance or music Mm. or an artist's eye on these issues. And that was sort of the beginning of my transition into speech writing and covering human rights issues as a journalist and looking at, you know, instead of bringing in social commentary to a bar scene where it might not be the space where people are as curious or receptive, you know, what would it look like to take my background in the arts and in writing and bring that into spaces where the arts aren't necessarily emphasized? So whether that was at the United Nations or the U.S. Institute for Peace or then eventually on the Grammys, I was able to then take these pieces of what I had been creating in this very intimate setting in bars around Austin and clubs and look at how can I bring to bear my background as a writer and performer into 
these kinds of conversations where many people in in those environments are not necessarily looking at the way in which artists and performers and writers might might view the most pressing issues of our time. So it made me really excited to see how it could build a bridge between those worlds. And, and that has really been my, my path ever since. I'm wondering, in the beginning when people, survivors, came up to you, did you ever, did it occur to you then that you might have this role going forward in your life to be an advocate and be someone that helps other people heal? It wasn't immediately evident, but what stood out to me was that there was a hunger for these kinds of poems and performances and stories because it gave people permission to approach me. It was almost as if I had extended an invitation Mm. for that kind of conversation to take place. And so even though it was just the beginning, it planted this seed in me where I realized that if I was willing to be vulnerable if I was willing to tell these kinds of stories, that I was also giving other people permission to tell their own. And so it encouraged me to explore what might be possible. I didn't anticipate that I would eventually transition into direct advocacy, but it gave me the sense that not only could this be a way to help survivors feel less alone, but that creative expression could be a core part of both my inner healing and the cultural healing that I wanted to see. And so, whereas I started performing songs and poems and having survivors approach me, I eventually created a community where survivors could begin to create their own. And I didn't know as a teenager that that would be the trajectory, but I can see how this seed was there from the beginning. And you did, even though In the beginning when you were writing about, there were threads of your experience in your writing and there was some darkness and you weren't being explicit about what happened or coming out about it. I think you also mentioned in the book that you had a lot of, maybe not a lot, but you had some role models who also were very direct. Like uh, I think you said Maya Angelou. Mm-hmm. You read her and she was very mm-hmm. open about her experiences mm-hmm. and abuse that she had endured mm-hmm. and um, so it seems like you did have, I mean, do you have any other role models that you had that kind of you thought did help you see that being vulnerable can be powerful too about mm-hmm. these things? I was deeply influenced by the poets and writers that I came across that addressed these issues and their personal narratives. And Maya Angelou was the first author that I read as a little girl who directly addressed her experience of abuse in such a powerful and lyrical way, which stayed with me. And she said, there's no greater agony than having an untold story inside of you. And that still resonates with me. Poets like Audre Lorde were important for me as a teenager. And she said, if I did not define myself for myself, I would be crunched into other people's fantasies for me and eaten alive. Not call to self-definition felt very important for me as a teen girl to define myself was to move out of a a story of who I was that was based on the denial of my voice, my desires, and into a fuller sense of my own humanity. So there were many women along the way, feminist writers and theorists and poets and artists who were speaking more directly about these issues that 
really gave me the courage to begin to speak my own. And then I had both men and women who I consider my art angels, you know, who were playwrights and blues musicians and painters and people who were significantly older than me who came into my life at vital points in time who really saw me and recognized my creative instincts and my gifts and reflected back to me that they were worth cultivating and worth sharing and came at at a moment where I really needed that validation and that witness. So I was also deeply influenced by those personal friendships of Mm. people that were significantly older who had navigated this territory before me, who knew what it was like to feel strange and, you know, navigating what it meant to be a young artist and to have all these visions locked up in your mind and so much passion and so much to share, but they were there for me and reminded me that my voice had value and that poetry was worth pursuing, that it was important. I needed that. Wasn't Rosalind? Rosalind Rosen uh, is one of my art angels. We're still very close. She's an award-winning playwright, screenwriter, and director. So she took me under her wing when I was a baby poet. Uh, Johnny Nicholas, who's a blues musician here in town, who's an incredible, soulful man. We're still very close. I met him when I was a little girl, and he also advocated for me and encouraged me in my music. So there have been many, Yeah, but those are a couple that I talk about in the book. Kind of referring back to what you were talking about when you shifted from delivering your message in clubs to more... Uh, to different venues in front of a different audience. Like, that made me think about what your idea of the role of the artist is. This is a question I've asked a few people. But typically artists do address political issues and uh, current issues in their work and as a way to bring awareness to the public to these things. Like, so it doesn't seem strange to me that you would have realized that you could bring your message to a different group of people. I see artists as cultural healers, and there are different ways in which we offer that. I think the role of the artist is to be a truth teller, to offer possibility. Even in work that's very abstract, less linear or direct, I think it's an invitation into possibility, into imagination, which we're in desperate need of. We can't create change unless we're able to see that another path is possible. And so I think in some ways, artists are the ones who remind us that another path is always possible. Part of that for me is through writing. And I love what Tony Cade Bambara says about writers, which is that the role of the writer is to make revolution irresistible. I find that so compelling because it signals both that a writer can be a truth teller and change maker, but also that the way in which we do it needs to be alluring. It needs to draw people in. There has to be something intriguing or beautiful about the way in which we do it, or we're missing the mark. At a time when we are incredibly polarized politically, and where most of the conversations around social issues in the realm of the political sphere tends to be very much reduced to a binary of two political parties and two agendas and two platforms. I think we are in need of artists who can not only tell the truth of 
what they see, bearing witness to what is, but can offer the realm of the possible and something that is not reduced to something so polarized and so limited. So in a very simple way, I think we need beauty and we need the possible and we need ways of seeing and connecting that bring us back to what it means to be human. And I think at its best, that art reminds us of that. And it can be as simple as reconnecting with our own experience, our own emotions first, and then being willing to imagine that we could be a part of creating something completely new. You know, we're always, as artists, we're always sort of at this precipice of the unknown. And it takes a lot of courage to stare at a blank canvas or a blank page to trust that something new will come, something new will emerge even when we can't see it yet. So in a sense, you know, artists are also our our seers because they're expected to see what is yet to be seen. I think there's so many different ways to engage. And I think the assumption is that if you're an artist who cares about social issues, that it needs to be very direct and very didactic in terms of your approach. And you need to cover it in this very, almost like, journalistic or documentary mm. style manner. And I think what we we need is a great range of diversity of vision, that that in and of itself is extremely reductive. Because if we're looking at changing systems which dehumanize people, then we need access to the full range of our humanity. And so limiting the scope of the work and making only a certain types of art forms socially relevant, I think basically just tells us that the rest of our humanity has no place. And so I'm more curious about what kinds of experiences we can have with art that make us feel more alive and more human and more connected to each other. And sometimes that's more direct and more explicit about a, a theme or social issue. And I think sometimes it's more implicit. It's more about being present and being curious and the ways in which we cultivate presence as human beings. And that's important too. And the joy of encountering the work is important and making the work is important. And a diversity of type of types of work that communicate differently to different people that receive information differently. Absolutely. And we need our joy right now more than ever before. And there's nothing more revolutionary than being a human being that's deeply rooted in our own joy and allowing that to guide and inform the choices we make to serve our communities and to engage in ways that that shift culture, but we need it. And so if there's a certain medium that we love to experience or to play in, we need to honor that too, because we need our joy. It's what sustains the revolution. Yeah, right. (laughs) Pleasure is important, and I think it's part of what makes art important. So obviously a big part of creating art is having something to say or a voice. Like artists create works, I would assume because they're motivated to say something to communicate something to the world about how they feel or about a subject or about themselves or they're processing something. And you talk a lot in your book about valuing your own voice, which I feel like I even struggle with myself or knowing what is my voice or what do I want or what do I need? I mean, I think that's a thing that comes up for me a lot relating to other people is like this fear that people's Maybe someone doesn't really know what they need and they don't know how to communicate that. And then if they don't, then there can be resentment later because you don't know what they needed or wanted. But I guess just to bring it back to just basically 
can you speak to the valuing your own voice if that's enough yes (laughs) i can speak to that the core challenge that i see with valuing our voices both as artists and also as potentially as survivors is the sense of shame that we carry and i think that is a universal human experience this shame that often becomes anchored in us very early around expressing who we are, expressing our own needs and desires, and having those needs and desires honored and respected. For, for many of us, we have experiences along the way where it's not safe to be fully expressed. It's not safe to articulate what we truly need and desire. It's not safe to even name our creative dreams. We Mm. live in a society in which we're often told that our creative dreams are not valid, that there's something to be set aside for more important and pragmatic matters. And we're often taught through various forms of abuse, neglect, or the absence of encouragement that some of the things that we most deeply value are not acceptable and that there are parts of our being that are simply not welcome in the room, that in order to win love and approval and safety, that we have to become what other people want to see. And what that does is that it teaches us that it's more important to be found desirable than to know and act on our own desires. And the conflation of the two makes it extremely challenging to know the difference between what belongs to me and what doesn't. What is my desire and what is yours? What is my truth and what is yours? Because when I learn that to survive and to find love and to find safety, that I have to become a reflection of what you want to see, it's very easy to lose myself. And so I think the first step to valuing our voices is falling in love with our own truth. And so many of us are very disconnected from our truth. And by that, I don't mean it in the abstract sense. I mean, in my body, what do I know and feel to be true for me in this moment? How am I experiencing my life? Not in, not in the abstract, but in the very deeply visceral, in the moment, these are the things that break my heart. These are the things that light me up. These are the things that I know to be true. And I think valuing our voices begins with falling in love with our own truth and cherishing that and beginning to voice that in places where that will be honored. And whether it begins with one safe friend or confidant or a counselor or community of other artists, simply beginning to step out and saying, this is what I see this is what I know, this is what I feel, and doing it with people that can reflect back to us that that is valid and has significance and that that is welcome, I think begins to relieve us from that fundamental sense of shame. Naming and expressing our shame is the gateway to creative freedom. And I don't think that many people realize how much shame they carry because it's been internalized for so long and at such a primal level. Hmm. I feel that my capacity 
to create in so many different forms of media to step into my work as an activist to speak in a very vulnerable way in the types of spaces that I've been invited into really began with writing about and sharing my deepest shame. And once I had finally illuminated that and I had brought everything into the light, the things that I was most ashamed of, the things that caused me the greatest pain in my life, I was then able to speak and to explore my creativity in ways that I never had before because I didn't feel that there was anything I had to hide anymore. Mm. I think a lot of the fears that artists have and many of the artists that I've, I've mentored over time, you know, they they tend to fixate on fears about the work, what work to create and how it's going to be received. But I think really all those fears are just a manifestation of shame because we don't trust ourselves and we don't trust that we're enough and that our truth is worth sharing. And I think the remedy for that is healing relationships, being in communities and in relationships with people that can finally reflect back to us, all of you is welcome here. And that if there's a truth you need to tell, it will be heard because you deserve to be heard. Hmm. And self-compassion, what we were talking about earlier. Absolutely. I think that is such a powerful key for anyone who's struggling with fear and shame, but particularly for artists around the creative process. It's so easy to swing between feeling like we have to take pride in and somehow, you know, inflate our ourselves around the work. You know, it has to be amazing and brilliant. And that's how we're going to sort of derive some, some sense of, of value or security. You know, we tend to swing between pride and shame, right? It's like mm. either it's brilliant or it's trash, you know? Yeah. And, and the reality is it's human, and it's constantly evolving. And some of the work is going to resonate with people in a powerful way, and some of it might not. But I think having a fundamental commitment to be gentle with ourselves and kind to ourselves as we're following our curiosity and as we're following our passions then gives us permission to move outside that, that extreme from either you know, I need to inflate myself and I need to have this grandiose sense of everything I create is genius. And if it's not, if it's anything less than perfection, then there's something wrong with me or, you know, comparing ourselves to others. Oh, it needs to be better than someone else's in order to have validity. Typically we swing between that, that temptation of defending the work or having to elevate it to feeling, ashamed or insecure or inferior and and neither one of those strategies works right because it shuts us down from play and it shuts us down from curiosity and if I always have to be better or worse than someone else then there's no room for me to grow it's really just about defending a territory so I think what I have seen in my own work and what I really encourage people in is to stay focused on what you are curious about, what you are passionate about, and what is stronger than your fear. And I think ultimately that 
that is some form of love. You know, you have to be in love with the work and in love with the process and in love with the people you want to share it with in some way. But I think most of all, you have to be willing to be a person who is compassionate and gentle with your own vulnerabilities and and fears because we we all question the work and question the validity of it and of how it will be received but you know ultimately it's really just a manifestation of the ways in which we have been taught to be ashamed of who we are and sometimes people will tell me that what i do is courageous or are vulnerable or radical in some way because I have been so open about my experiences of trauma and, and abuse. And and I understand that sentiment because I think, you know, a lot of us are in environments where it's simply not safe to share in those ways. And yet it has become something that does not feel extraordinary in any way. It just feels like a way of honoring where I've been and honoring the parts of me that were silenced and lost and just being willing to acknowledge that even with writing the book that, that, you know, there were some days where I just questioned everything. I know I'd wake up and have my sort of morning ritual of meditation and reflection and then going into writing and I would think about the things that I was going to be diving into that day and just think this is absolutely insane and there's no way that I should be sharing this with anyone and yet I was able to come back to this sense that I'm not responsible for the book being brilliant I'm not responsible for how it will be received I'm not responsible for the impact that it will have but I am responsible for honoring the truth about my own life and if I could, if I can do that, if I can do that every day in some gentle way, then I will finish. And then when I'm finished, I have another choice. And that choice is, am I willing to allow this to be visible? And so now as I'm thinking about the book being in the world soon, I'm thinking about how else am I going to need to take care of and honor myself, knowing that it is beyond my control. It will have a life of its own. And and I did my best to be faithful to the process. I'm sure with the book coming out, there'll be many more moments of, as you've already had, like people sharing with you about their experiences. I'm just wondering how you able, how you are able to take care of yourself being an ear for a lot of people sharing their traumas. Like how do you then take care of yourself so that you don't get weighed down with that? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like being a therapist who Mm -hmm. hears people talk about what they're going through all the time. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of a burden in a way, isn't it? So there are two pieces to that for me. One is I have to be very intentional about my practices of self-compassion. There are some ways in which I take care of myself that enable me to be more present and more resilient in the face of hearing other people's narratives of trauma. And so those are, you know, my spiritual practices and meditation and prayer. It's 
journaling. It's staying connected to friends and family members who are confidants for me. It's seeking out ongoing support for my own healing and recovery and immersing myself in, in places and environments that nourish me, being in nature, spending time with animals, being in arts spaces, being in community with other friends who are creators and activists who are taking risks in the way in which they make their work and all of these things, self-compassion, community, spiritual practices, all of these different facets really help to root and ground me in the ways in which I am loved and supported, which then gives me a deeper capacity to be a witness for others. And yet with all of that, it's sometimes still very challenging. And secondary trauma and vicarious trauma is a reality that I've had to navigate. And and it's one of the reasons that I am so vigilant and committed to my own healing practices and relationships that are life-giving for me. Because I know that if I'm not nourishing myself and leading by example to live a life of self-compassion that the work is not possible particularly my my activism and advocacy the other piece is just i've had to become more more mindful with the vicarious trauma of how i set boundaries and in what context i will dive deeper with people and in what context i will be the source of a referral or providing some guidance after speech or after a media engagement to simply say, you know, I'm with you and thank you for sharing that. And since I can't be that person to walk with you as much as I, you know, would love to be that person, since I can't be that that person to, to walk with you, I would love to connect you to some things that were helpful for me and some resources that were helpful for me. So I think the other element of just addressing the the secondary trauma in addition to my own self-care is setting the boundaries around what I can and cannot give and then just being mindful of the fact that you know people have no matter what they've been through they still have choices and they can still learn to advocate for themselves and so if I can be a part of connecting them to that next step then I'm also trusting that they have the resilience to take care of themselves. And so I think part of the shift for me has just been acknowledging that I can hold a vision of survivors as inherently resilient and resourceful and powerful. And in that place of empathy, I can also acknowledge that they can become their own advocates and that I don't have to be the one to always intervene. And that's been a process for me. So I'm I'm learning that in all my relationships that I can have both deep empathy for someone and a commitment to seeing their strength and their resilience to where I don't necessarily have to intervene, but I can reflect back to them. Here are some possibilities. And sometimes people need to be reminded of how capable they are instead of us always stepping in to say, you know, I'm going to be the solution. So that that's taken me some time, but I'm I'm still learning. Yeah, that brings up a lot of things for me just around like, yeah, being in even in a relationship, someone's savior or mm-hmm. just the whole idea of having healthy boundaries. I feel mm-hmm. like that's an, an issue that a lot of people deal with trying mm-hmm. to navigate like what are healthy boundaries? What are my boundaries? Mm-hmm. What could you share or elaborate on boundaries or healthy boundaries that you've learned? I really love the model of nonviolent communication which emphasizes 
in our communication that we always take responsibility for our needs, our emotions, our desires, and that we express ourselves from the place of here is my experience, here is what I'm needing and desiring, this is my request, this is what it would mean to me for you to meet that request, and to encourage other people to do the same. And I think what what that style of communication emphasizes is that someone else's emotions and experiences and their needs and desires are their own. And part of being in a healthy relationship is encouraging someone to take ownership of that and to express that in a healthy way. And then it means I have that responsibility as well. And so one of the patterns that I've had to shift in my own relationships, particularly in in dating and in partnerships, has been the temptation to be so focused on caring for and nurturing the other person and anticipating their needs and desires that I lose connection to my own. And then I think what ends up happening in that process is that I actually don't, when I'm in that pattern, I don't give the men that I date the opportunity to really be there for me and support me in the ways that I need if I'm not connected to what I need and I'm not expressing that Mm. in a really clear and respectful way. So in the past, I always thought, well, I'm just being loving by focusing on the other person and anticipating what they might need or what might make them happy. And what I didn't realize was that by not staying uh, centered in my own experience as a woman and then clearly articulating how they could show up for me and support me, in a really respectful manner and in a way where I'm not necessarily criticizing them or asking them to change in any way, but simply inviting them in, hey, this is how you can support me. That to me was a really important realization because I realized I wasn't giving them the opportunity to be there for me. I was not being clear. You know, I may have shared experiences where I, I thought it was sort of implicit what my desired response might be, but I wasn't actually being vulnerable and taking the risk of expressing it, knowing that they might choose not to meet that need. And so I think for people that have a history of not having their needs and desires respected and honored, if you have that tendency to want to anticipate what somebody else is wanting, I think coming back to yourself and and realizing there is a sense of risk and vulnerability and pain of saying, this is what I want. This is what I need and where I am. And you have a choice. You may or may not want to give that to me or support me in that way. But I think part of having a healthy relationship is not only being willing to be honest and articulate that, but then also being able to have enough self-compassion that you know if they say no, it's not really, a, you're not really giving somebody a choice unless they could say yes or no, right? And if, if they decline to meet that need or to fulfill that request, being able to say, it's enough for me to ask and I can still take care of myself, right? Hmm. I can still hear your no and recognize that then I have that information and I can still take care of myself and I can still be okay. And then I can decide, you know, is that no something that means I don't want to continue with the relationship or is it just simply a no? And in this context, I find another way to meet that need, you know, and I, I think that that is something that's newer for me because for me, the vulnerability or the fear 
that I wasn't aware of was more around, well, first of all, I feel almost ashamed or embarrassed to acknowledge that I might have the need or the desire. And then if I articulate that, am I being quote needy? Am I being someone who's sort of grasping for something, attention or approval or, you know, is, is that healthy? And then, you know, having this other sense of, okay, but then what if they say no, or I anticipate they'll say no, then is it even worth expressing, right? So having all these layers, and I think what's been helpful for me is being able to practice with different people in my life, not because it's so emotionally charged in a a partnership or a dating relationship, but being able to practice with people in my life, making small requests, and then seeing if those will be met and seeing how it shows up for me if they say no. And then being able to take care of myself in that process and then realizing, oh, it's not the end of the world if somebody says no. And it feels really good when they say yes. And more importantly, they get to know who I am and what my inner world is actually like. And if I don't do this, if I don't articulate it, then do they really have the opportunity to know and love me? Because if I'm just showing up to be there for them, do they really know and love me? Is Am I giving them the opportunity to do that? And I've found with men that I've dated where that, I, you know, I feel like maybe they weren't the right fit for me for one reason or another, but I felt like the dynamic was healthy. One of the things that I have discovered is that when people care about you, they, they do want to know and they do want the opportunity to show up and they may not always be there for us in the ways that we want but until we articulate that, they have no opportunity to do that. So that's something I'm growing in. And, you know, and then I have found that I have more people in my life than ever before that actually will ask me the question, how can I support you? And so there's also something about being more clear and more open and honest that creates a dynamic where the people who are in your life want to be a part of those kinds of conversations. So I think starting a relationship without including yourself in those ways makes it really difficult down the line to then suddenly introduce that piece. Mm. It can happen, but I think we create the expectation pretty quickly in the relationship, whether it's going to be balanced or not, whether there's going to be real reciprocity or not. So I have realized that part of having compassion for the people I love and particularly for my partners is being honest about what I really feel and want and need and requesting that in a really clear but respectful way and then giving them the space to be a yes or a no and you know once I have that information then I get to decide okay is this is this something that I can receive from someone else is this something I can give myself is this so important to me that I need to have a conversation about whether we continue with the relationship but at least it gives me the opportunity and then the opportunity so it's new. It's newer for me yeah. to be that clear, to say, hey, I've noticed this pattern. I've noticed this is going on. I have a request for you. It would make me really happy and help me to feel taken care of if you would. And is that something you'd be willing to give me? You know, it's so simple, but it's so yeah, it vulnerable, <laughs> right? It's vulnerable, but it's really simple. And then they get to decide. Sounds so healthy, you know? I mean, that's just a little example, ideal. but <laughs> yeah. right? So I've started practicing that of, mm. hey, I've noticed this. It's not a judgment about them or making them wrong or, you know, why don't you do this or that? <laughs> but just, I noticed this. Here's how I feel. I would love this. Are you willing to give that to me? 
Yeah, everything you just said and it's totally just, resonates. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's so simple, but I find that for me, it's one of the most vulnerable things that I can do in my life is to be that clear. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I can really relate to where you were saying you were in relationships and kind of wanting to be, and we talked about this earlier, wanting to be the pleaser or the kind of like be super attuned to the other person. But it's true that in a way you're by not really being in tune with yourself and what you need and communicating that clearly, they're not really seeing who you are. And I guess that's a way to avoid rejection in a sense. Right. Because if we are taught that in order to be loved, we simply have to always give other people what they need and desire and anticipate how they're going to feel. It's very easy to lose our sense of self and to lose our voice in the process because we're always outside of our own experience. And I've found that people who tend toward being extremely empathetic struggle with this the most because they're always thinking about how it feels to be in someone else's position, which I think is incredibly valuable in relationships, but our compassion has to include us. And it's it lacks balance when it's only compassion for the other person. And you see this in toxic relationships and abusive relationships, which is typically the victim of an abusive relationship has tremendous compassion for the abuser, almost always has a Mm. deep sense of loyalty to them and this feeling that they just need to help the person. If they could just help the person heal, they could finally get back to the way it was in the beginning. But what they miss and what what I missed and what so many people I've spoken to miss and that is that our compassion has to include us in order for a relationship to be healthy. And we become often loyal to the people that harm us because we feel they need us and that they need to be taken care of by us. And you leave yourself out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I remember having the thought and when I was in an abusive relationship, I remember having the thought when he would scream at me, these horrible, horrible things, thinking, this isn't about me. And I guess in a transcendent spiritual sense, it's not. Yeah. You know, in an ultimate sense, it's not, right? It's not about me. This is a reflection of him and his pain and where he is. But it is also about me. Yeah. But in that moment, I just remember... I'm screaming in my face and thinking, you know, it made him so upset that I was that I was just peaceful and calm and wouldn't yell back and it just made him angrier and I I just remember thinking this is not about me. I was so out of my own body, my own experience. Mm. I just felt that what was important in that moment was his pain and that he wouldn't be doing this if he wasn't in pain. And that is true, but it is incomplete truth, right? So also my pain matters and I deserve compassion and respect and I deserve to be honored no matter if someone's in pain or not. And why someone's doing what they're doing ultimately becomes irrelevant. What matters is actually how they're showing up and treating me in that moment. And I think it's really easy when you're sensitive and empathetic to think, oh, well, there's a reason why they're doing this. Why are they doing this? They have trauma in their past or they have all these stresses or these insecurities and vulnerabilities and and we're able somehow to do this emotional calculus right of well I can diminish the fact that I'm being harmed in this relationship because I understand why they're doing the toxic behavior and somehow that makes it okay or we're able to rationalize it and say well I have compassion for them so it's not as an important why they're doing I mean 
for me at this point in my life, it's not as important to me why somebody is showing up the way they're showing up as much as how are they showing up and does that honor and respect my boundaries? I had to transition Mm -hmm. to that and really recognize, okay, now that I'm including myself, what am I feeling? What am I needing? Because when I was in that cycle, it was about him. It was about finding him resources and getting him help for addiction and mental health issues. And it was always about that. And I was just completely disconnected from the fact that I also deserved compassion and I also deserved to be supported and seen and heard and valued. And I just thought, you know, I just need to be this endless support and presence of love and this isn't about me. And and ultimately it was it was about both of us and it needed to be about both of us. And isn't that type of abusive relationship in a sense a continuation of other types of abuse where you have to disassociate yourself? Right. You have to disconnect from yourself to survive it, in a sense. Yeah, I think this form of survival is something that not just people who've been through childhood abuse experience, but anyone who's had to learn to please or to take care of the adults or caretakers in their environment in order to get their needs met, I think that inversion can happen pretty early for a lot of people where we're so vulnerable when we're young. And we learn how to survive in different ways. We have to get our emotional needs met somehow. We have to have our attachment needs met somehow. And so we find different ways to get them met. And then those those forms of relating no longer serve us as we, we grow up. They, ha- they help us survive and then they no longer serve us. And so I've seen with a lot of men and women that I've spoken to who have had those types of experiences when they're younger where for whatever reason they were not receiving what they needed to feel safe and loved and protected and valued then as they get older they are vulnerable to getting into relationships where that's replicated because it just feels familiar it feels like home for somebody to set up that that dynamic with you and I think one of the the common misconceptions about abusers is that they're always these sort of hyper-masculine or, or hyper-dominant figures, right? Very controlling in overt ways, but sometimes they show up as victims. They're always the victim, and they use their victim story to, to control, right? So it's it's always about them, and it's always about their pain. But in the end, it's just another tactic, well, maybe we could shift a little bit. I just there's a few things that I did want to touch on. Something you mentioned in your book about gender scripts. I was just wondering mm-hmm. if you could elaborate on that and how that relates to a question that you had in your book too, which is kind of heavy. What is the cost of being female on this earth? Mm. <laughs> you know, like I don't know. I just I guess that's just something that I want to understand better. Mm-hmm. You know, as a guy who wants to show up in a more useful way in the world to mm-hmm. women. I appreciate that. So with the gender scripts, I first referenced that in relationship to my childhood because I I grew up in a environment with uh, conservative evangelical Christianity and the ways in which gender and sexuality were depicted in those churches and my early childhood experiences had a, a lot of inequity and 
for instance, you know, women could not be pastors or elders. Women were not allowed to teach men. There was definitely an expectation of a uh, more traditional marriage where they very literally teach that wives should submit to their husbands. And so there are all these different examples within the structure of these institutions that that gender equity, inequity, gender inequality is the will of God. And so this early theology that I was exposed to set up a framework that had a deep influence on me because it was also then replicated in the ways in which I was abused. And there were religious connotations to that abuse that also reinforced the idea that it was somehow the will of this male deity who only allowed men to be spiritual leaders to control and use the bodies of women and girls. And so that was replicated, that theology was replicated in the ways in which I was abused. And that particular type of theology was used to justify the abuse. So to be clear, I do not think that that expression of Christianity is the heart of that faith or the true teachings of Christ or in any way indicative of all expressions of Christianity. It was a very specific experience that I had being both in the South and in uh, a tradition in which it was very explicit that women could not have positions of leadership. Women were to be submissive. Women were essentially there to please men and take care of children. And the idea, ideas around sexuality were very much in line with that kind of paradigm and that kind of control. So um, the stigmatization of anything other than uh, heterosexual marriage and sexual exclusivity within that. So there were no healthy conversations within that culture around sexuality, around consent, around healthy pleasure, around what it might look like to negotiate desire and boundaries and respect and the erotic being something that was essentially taboo and forbidden rather than something that had incredible uh, creative power and uh, something that is a healthy part of life and should be integrated into a healthy part of life. So I think the combination of all those things for me sort of created a very toxic introduction to gender and sexuality. And although for some people that might seem rather extreme, I think it's just part of a continuum of what we see globally. So I think the stigma around sexuality and pleasure and negotiating conversations around consent with young people. I mean, we still have a drastic lack of age-appropriate sex education and healthy conversations around sexuality in the U.S. We have extremely high rates of sexual violence. Approximately one to five to one in six women will be sexually assaulted. Some That's the most conservative estimates that we have. Some are higher. Globally, we have about one in three women will experience partner violence or sexual violence. So we look at it in terms of the cost of being female. We are essentially looking at what are the unique vulnerabilities that come 
with being born female or being assigned female gender at birth, what does that look like and what is the cost? And we know that one of the costs is fundamentally a greater risk of experiencing sexual violence and partner violence, including uh, sexual exploitation. And the other piece is looking at the, the ways in which politics and religion reinforce, justify, and continue to perpetuate these inequities, whether it's uh, the religious theology that still will not acknowledge a woman's sovereignty over her own body, or has a very narrow and specific script of what uh, a man's role is and what a woman's role is, we are still at a moment where these ideologies are so deeply entrenched. And I think it's dehumanizing for both men and women, because ultimately it narrows the range of human emotion and human expression. And the last piece that you mentioned in terms of being an ally, I think it's it's a very important time to have that conversation and to be able to recognize that there are ways in which we can speak about these vulnerabilities and inequalities that invites in allies. And there are ways in which we can speak about them that shut down the conversation and make people feel alienated and to blame. And so I've become really curious about how we can communicate across different expressions of gender and sexuality to build a sense of solidarity. And it's an important time for that. I really do appreciate everything you're sharing very much. Thank you. I know we're not just talking about art, but it's, uh, (laughs) you know, we're talking about just uh, such important subjects about being human and relating to each other in a healthy way and issues that aren't talked about a lot that are very serious and prevalent. Maybe to bring this around at the end, back to art, Mm -hmm. um, maybe we could talk about at the end of your book, you have prompts that are broken down within each chapter for people to explore themselves and answer these different questions. And there's one in chapter three, it's specifically about, it's called the artist and the destroyer. And I mm-hmm. just thought maybe we could, ex- I don't know. I just thought that was, would be most relevant to my audience. I guess that might be kind of interesting. Um, some of the questions are, how can you honor your inner artist? How are you already expressing your creativity? Have you ever told yourself you're not an artist? <laughs> Is that belief serving you? I feel like that's something that I, that's a conversation I've had with so many artists, whether they actually could call themselves an artist or not. Or there was like a transition point in their career where they're like, I can call myself an artist now, <laughs> whatever. I don't know. That's mm-hmm. kind of a thing. It's like maybe they've been an artist their whole life, but there's something about owning that and saying it to the world and mm-hmm. I'm an artist. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What thoughts do you have about that? That section of the book starts with a conversation I had with a therapist when I was a teenager, and he was baffled by all the ways that I was struggling and didn't know how to help me. But he shared that when he looked at me, he saw that in one hand I was holding a poem, and then in my other hand I was holding a match ready to set it on fire. And I thought that was such a poignant way of describing where I was as a 
a teen girl looking for help and support with that image. What he was describing was that I was at war within myself, that there was a part of me that was a creator, an artist, and there was a part of me that was a destroyer. And we talk about the inner critic or for me, the, the destroyer was the, the part of me that had been so deeply ingrained and, and set up very early in life to essentially wage war against the things I loved and valued and, and, and appreciated, the, the true parts of me. And it was really an echo of all the people that abused me, all the people that taught me that I didn't have value, that I was somehow unworthy. And the shame. Yes, yeah. absolutely, going back to the shame. And so I think for me, I had to learn that I did have these these two forces within me and that the more that I became conscious of the fact that I did have this destroyer that I did have this part of me that wanted to set everything on fire and run that wanted to shut down the creation wanted to shut down what I was making because it didn't feel safe then I was able to have greater compassion for the, for that war that was being waged and why it was being waged within me and I was able to over time make make peace with it because instead of seeing the destroyer or the inner critic as something I needed to silence or, or reject, it was really an invitation for me to be more compassionate and more gentle and more aware. So I looked at the ways in which I could could nourish and feed the part of me that really did want to create in the world. And mm. And I think the most important part was creating space for that in a very intentional and daily way and also surrounding myself with people that were also valuing their creativity. So there's a difference, I think, between hearing encouragement for your art from someone who cares about you but is not necessarily engaging in their own process and somebody who's in it and who knows what it takes to to show up to the blank canvas or the the blank page and what is required of you. And I I think surrounding myself with other artists who were in the process of making Mm. was life-saving in terms of just being able to continue and to trust that that part of me was worth fighting for and worth honoring. So sometimes it just means that I allow what I've I've made, no matter how small it may seem to me, I, I allow that to be enough. And it's very easy to, even after you complete a a work of art or a piece of writing, it's very easy to move on to the next piece and to always be in motion and to always think, I still have to prove myself or I still have to do more. And I think it becomes really important when you're wrestling with your identity as an artist and the validity of the work to be able to come back to, in small ways, just celebrating what you've already made, being able to acknowledge it and remember it and to celebrate it. It's so easy to feel that we just have to keep pushing harder Mm. and faster and to prove ourselves. And we live in a a culture where we're essentially trained to always feel that we're not good enough and that we have to be very visibly and overtly productive in order to have any value, right? And 
So being able to acknowledge the seasons that come and how the work that we're engaging in, the body of work may change over time, where our curiosity is leading us, where energies are being channeled, those things change. But I think if we can create some continuity with a fundamental commitment to honoring the process and showing up in some small way each day for our creativity, I see it as a relationship. If I want to have intimacy, if I want to have connection, then I need to show up and I need to be present and I need to be willing to listen. And I think the same is true for creative work and for our art. If I want to be a channel for songs and poems and new books and speeches, and I want to be able to bring new work into the world, it's not as much about forcing myself or being disciplined as much as cultivating a relationship. And if I show up for it, the poetry and the songs and the speeches, they come. But I have to be willing to cultivate it. I mean, in a way, it's 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 a kind of romance. Yeah. And you know, I have to be willing to communicate that, you know, I'm here and I'm available and I'm listening. And if there's something you want to say, there's something that wants to come through, then I'm here. I'm here for it. Instead of saying, this is all about somehow proving myself or feeling some kind of pressure to produce. I think it's more about that that moment of intimacy and that quiet space of being available and being willing to listen, to follow the those quiet and sometimes simple signs of where the work wants to go. To me, it sounds like self-love and self-compassion. That's really what the at the core of that is what I'm it's hearing. It's a very strong theme for me. Yeah. And some something that I've had to continuously learn to cultivate more of. Mm-hmm. But I I do see the creative process as deeply relational and that there is a spirit to the work and I have to honor it. Yeah, I like another one of your prompts here. It says, we are all born inherently creative. What forms of art or creative expression would you give yourself permission to explore if it didn't have to be quote, perfect. Mm. Mm-hmm. Perfectionism. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's another one. Yes. And I think perfectionism, procrastination, all these different forms that our resistance may take is really uh, a form of shame. Mm. It's just shame disguised in other aspects. And hiding yourself, which right. is shame. Right, right. Because as painful as it may be to not delve into work that's important to us in in the arts or in any creative endeavor, our procrastination and our perfectionism and the other forms of resistance that show up, and I still have them just like everyone else, but what I understand about that now is that there is a, a place within me that ultimately doesn't want to be revealed or there's something I don't want to have to feel if I engage in the process of making something new and it's very vulnerable to open ourselves up to what we have to feel, what we have to see in order to bring something new into the world. And so sometimes it feels better to procrastinate or to obsess about what is the right way to do the work or how will it be received or is it worth doing and circling with these questions that we circle as artists or everything has to all the conditions have to be perfect right i have to wait for the perfect environment partners to create with 
supplies. <laughs> so whatever it is, yeah. But there's always there's always a reason, and and we're creative, so we come up with countless reasons why it's not yet time. It's not the right time. Or you so. could even take it further in the wrong direction and totally numb out by drinking or doing drugs or right. who knows what to take it even further down. Exactly. Because we have to be willing to feel what we feel in order to create in an honest way. And most of us have a lot of emotions and experiences we're carrying that we just simply don't want to feel. I think it's also part of the reason why you see that self-medication with a lot of artists is because I think for many of us, that wellspring of emotion is something we need to draw from in order to continue to create but that also means that we live very close to our emotional life. And I think there are a lot of forms of work that just simply don't require that level of emotional presence. So building through, you know, whether it's contemplative practices or community or reading and encountering the work of other artists that have wrestled with these questions, you know, whatever, whatever helps us to be more gentle with ourselves, I think becomes really important because really we're deepening our capacity to feel what we feel and see what we see and share that with the world. And sometimes that is incredibly frightening, but it's worth it. Yeah. (laughs) Because it makes us feel alive. Ultimately, that's why it's worth it. Well, Brooke, I think we should probably stop. (laughs) Okay. We'll be here all night. Yeah. Thank Uh, you so much for everything that you do and for your book and, all your advocacy and just being Thank here and talking with me, me and sharing. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care.